On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, the Marine Corps looks at its technology future and the startup scene at Homeland Security. It's Thursday, June 15th, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. The Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department's bringing his team to FedGov Today TV. John Sherman and six of his colleagues, including the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are on this Sunday's FedGov Today TV show. You can watch it Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 in Washington, and you can always find the TV show on demand at FedGovToday.com and the FedGov Today YouTube channel. The nominee to become the next Commandant of the Marine Corps says technology is integral to preparing his service for the future fight. The Senate Armed Services Committee questioned General Eric Smith, the current Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, at his confirmation hearing Tuesday. In this highlight of that hearing, the chairman of the committee, Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island, asks General Smith about the Marine Corps' tech posture. We understand that the Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory is currently conducting experimentation on new technologies and future capabilities. Uh, if confirmed, how would you sharpen the Marine Corps' focus on this critical capability? Uh, you know, it's if you don't have the ammo, it's tough to fight, basically. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Contested logistics in any theater is a, is a significant challenge. I believe that contested logistics is an all-of-the-above matter. What I mean by that, sir, is you have to conduct pre-staging of certain resources, and fortunately we have a lot of allies and friends around the regions of the world who will allow us to do so. We have to be very innovative as our warfighting lab is doing so that we have unmanned systems to deliver those supplies that we so critically need. And also, we have to do some very creative work to do additive manufacturing and 3D printing forward. Uh, if confirmed, I'm committed to continuing that effort because I do see one day we will be printing forward in forward operating bases, we'll be printing major end items, aircraft engines, propellers. We'll be doing that forward as opposed to straining the lines that come from the United States through, uh, through contested logistics areas. I think your vision's accurate. That uh, implies that we have to have intellectual property rights and many other things which we will work on while you continue to develop your approach. The other aspect of this is uh, this would be a joint effort. So what type of complementary uh, approaches are you taking with other services, the Navy, Army, Air Force, Space Force? Mr. Chairman, the logistics piece is, in fact, a joint fight. So as a, as a current vice service chief, we work very hard through the Joint Requirements Oversight Council underneath the leadership of the vice uh, chairman of the Joint Chief Staff, Admiral Grady, to ensure that everything we do is complementary to each other. For example, sure, when the Navy Logistics Command needs to move assets for the Marine Corps throughout the Pacific, it's incumbent upon us to ensure that what we need is exactly what we need. We know the, what we call the Cuban square, the size, the weight, that we reduce that. And we've been on a significant effort to reduce our fighting weight, which quite honestly, over 15 years of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan had grown substantially. One of the first things to logistics is need less where you can. Thank you. Uh, one of your prime responsibilities is training and organizing the Corps in order to operate in multiple uh, combatant areas. Um, if confirmed, how would you ensure your efforts are such that the Marines can, in fact, operate from CENTCOM to Indopaycom to NORTHCOM, et cetera? 
Chairman, if confirmed, I will continue to work with our Training and Education Command, and if confirmed, would direct them to ensure that our moniker of in every climb and place remains. We do that now in the high north with Norway. We train there repeatedly. We still train in the desert at 29 Palms, and we are clearly operating across the spectrum in the Pacific, and we're operating in the European theater as we recently did with Task Force 61-2 in support of those operations after the, uh, the reprehensible attacks of Russia into Ukraine. Thank you. And then one uh, additional responsibility is to manage the talent you have, and you have impressive talent. Uh, um, your assessment at this point of the challenges that you face in terms of retention, recruitment, and basically just the uh, morale and esprit de corps. Chairman, the Marine Corps met its recruiting mission last year, and they'll meet it again this year. We've been fortunate because we've treated our Marines well through Talent Management 2030, that our retention goals, which we attempt to meet by October, were met in March this year. So Marines will vote with their feet, and they're choosing to stay. When we keep more, and what we're talking about, Chairman, is keeping them from between the five and the 10-year marks. Not, not every Lance Corporal becoming a Master Gunnery Sergeant. We're talking five to 10 years, which is where our gap historically is. Because we're able to keep them, keep that experience and that talent, it is, uh, it's hugely beneficial to the service, and I think the reason the Marine Corps has met its recruiting objectives is we haven't changed. We haven't lowered our standards, and we won't. We're here to do war fighting and lethality, and we will not change our standards because the, the combat that comes tomorrow demands those high standards. Thank you very much, General. Uh, Senator Worker, please. Uh, well, thank you very, very much, and I appreciate that, uh, that statement. I think it's very important for us to understand why the... Marine Corps members are voting with their feet, as you say, and what lessons we might be able to learn to, to apply service-wide. Um, General Smith, the 23 NDAA set a floor of 31 traditional L-class amphibious ships, LHAs, and LPDs, and gave the Commandant of the Marine Corps explicit requirements authority for amphibious ships. Many of us are frustrated that the Secretary of Defense has not uh, set in motion uh, processes to actually get this done. It, General Smith, it is, is it your understanding, based on the statute, that you are, you're going to be explicitly required to have uh, 31 traditional amphibious ships? Senator, it is. 31 is the minimum. Okay. And uh, why uh, is this a sound, uh, necessary requirement, in your opinion? Senator, it is. Okay. And, uh, and why is that? Why is that uh, a necessary requirement? Senator, we are and remain and must remain America's global combined arms crisis response force. When a crisis begins to erupt, that is not the time to begin to move to a pier, to begin to load a ship, and more importantly, sir, to begin to train your pilots to land on a pitching, rolling deck at night. 31, at a minimum, enables us to train and to deploy and to stay deployed so we can tamp those crises down and alter adversary trajectories on behalf of the joint force. If we, if we do everything necessary uh, from a legislative standpoint, 
right now, how soon can uh, can we see that thirty uh, first L class amphibious ship? Sir, there are thirty one ships in the inventory today, and what we seek and have sought for some time is to replace the aging LSDs, who are approaching forty years of service life, with LPDs, which currently is the best performing ship in the production line. That is a one-for-one one swap, sir. So when okay, one well, thank comes, you for that clarification. How soon can that one-for-one one swap be accomplished if we start today? The normal production for a ship is two years, Senator. So from the time it is put on contract until it is complete, it is a two-year production cycle. Um, all right. Let's look, um, let's look back at the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. How were two Marine Corps battalions able to deploy? Senator, we had two battalions, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. One was forward in the CENTCOM area of responsibility, and the second was forward on a Marine expeditionary unit. So they were forward deployed already. That is what we do. That's who we are. So without that forward deployment, you, you give up time, and time is the one thing that an adversary will never allow you to have. And, and uh, the amphibious ships were uh, absolutely uh, a central part of that. Is that correct? Sure, they were, as they were in the initial uh, moves into Afghanistan after the attacks on 9-11. Um, if we could have responded to the powerful earthquake uh, in uh, Turkey, resulting in 50,000 or more deaths, um, would, um, did, did we respond, and, uh, and uh, if not, why not? Senator, we had a small detachment. Marines, in, in short, did not. We have Marine battalions. We have Marine squadrons ready to go. But when there are no amphibious ships to get on, to train with, then we are unable to execute that mission that is lawfully tasked to us uh, as a crisis response force. General Eric Smith at his confirmation hearing Tuesday to become the next Commandant of the Marine Corps. You can find a link to watch the hearing in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. You can watch the newest innovation in government television show from FedGov Today on demand now. Innovation in government from GeoInt features leaders from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Army's 513th Intelligence Brigade, and lots more government agencies, along with industry leaders, discussing the tech future of the GeoInt community. You'll find innovation in government from GeoInt on demand at fedgovtoday.com. The Department of Homeland Security and its components are looking at 32 startup companies and the technology they can deliver in critical areas. Those companies demonstrated what they can do at the Silicon Valley Innovation Program Demo Week. Melissa O oh is Managing Director of the Silicon Valley Innovation Program at DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Melissa, welcome. It's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, what did you learn at this demo week? What did you take away from it? And uh, how are you pushing it forward? Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Francis, for having me. Um, our Silicon Valley Innovation Program Demo Week was um, a really great opportunity to showcase uh, over 30 of the startups that we're funding for DHS. Um, they're developing commercial technologies and shaping those products to meet the DHS mission. So a number of takeaways was, one, that the in-person um, engagement that we had 
um, really fostered a lot of collaboration and interactions. A number of our startups told us that they got to meet a number of different government agencies and DHS operational components that were interested in their technologies beyond the components that they were already working with. Um, and they also lear learned about each other. Um, and there's definitely a lot of collaboration amongst the startups that that is uh, that's yielded a lot of fruitful benefits. Some of them are actually going to do some co-proposals together um, and uh, and and do some exciting things. Broadening the uh, the uh, connections that some of these companies have with particular components. How do you uh, how do you like to see the components kind of bridge those gaps to communicate with each other to say we have this technology it might be useful to somebody else that strikes me as something that's important but difficult in an organization like DHS. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, definitely, we even had a panel of DHS components that were talking about what keeps them up at night. And you could just tell that each of them were sharing with each other some of the same common pain points that they had. And so, you know, this this event gave not just the opportunity for them to meet each other, but also to hear about their challenges, their common challenges, and gave us uh, within SVIP, as well as the broader innovation community, a chance to hear what some of those common pain points were so that they could be um, thinking about new innovations that could address those, uh, those shared needs, those shared gaps and requirements across the DHS component space you talked about how uh, you got feedback that the in-person engagement really fostered collaboration at this event melissa how do you maintain that or how should the companies or how should the components maintain that moving forward so that it's not just oh this is great it happened one day or it happened a couple of days and then it kind of it becomes stagnant until the next time there's a couple of days where everybody's together yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, in, in this hybrid remote environment that we're still kind of operating in, it's really important to establish and build those connections and relationships. A lot of that is really just um, person by person and um, and using SVIP as a conduit for establishing those connections. Um, I already have one of uh, the, my component partners that asked, hey, can we talk to this startup? Because, you know, we heard about some really interesting technology that can help us on the border. Um, and I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me know how I can help. Um, love to foster that that conversation. So a lot of it is just through those in um, those uh, those personal interactions. I read that the technologies that uh, were present here, uh, areas like computer vision, cybersecurity, data analytics, digital credentials, health tech, language translation, and sensors. That's a pretty broad scope. How do you help uh, the components, and how do you help the companies demonstrate? what they have and find the right eyeballs within the agency so they get in front of the right people to show what they can do. Yeah, um, we, we, we group the companies based on those areas because we know that the components are have, have different use cases for their different mission areas. And so um, we ask the companies, when they get up on stage, take five minutes to talk about the use case that you're working on, um, and then also talk about the underlying technology so that other components can get a sense as to how that technology can apply to their use case. Uh, and then we also had a, an expo area where each of the companies could have those individual conversations with components um, and other agencies to talk about, you know, hey, how can you, how can your sensor technology, how can your computer vision te technology help my problem um, over here? How do the companies learn about the needs of the uh, agency or the components to be able to develop those use cases to then show in their demonstrations, Melissa? 
Yeah. So, you know, obviously the, the event that we had was an opportunity to have our components share um, what their pain points are, what their challenges are um, through the sort of the hallway conversations that occurred. There's a lot of that. Um, and then also just uh, formally through our program, through the Silicon Valley Innovation Program, we cultivate those relationships with our operational partners and share out um, what those needs and those use cases are. Um, a lot of what I do is to have those conversations across the components and try and even pair up where there may be common needs with CDP and USCIS um, uh, that, that they have. Um, you know, we actually have a new topic on the street that we just announced where it is uh, a combination of CBP, USCIS, and DHS privacy that have this common need for privacy-enhancing technologies. So uh, that's the way that's the way we get the word out. How do you uh, see the relationship between Silicon Valley and the private sector more broadly and the department separate from this event, um, but kind of on a macro level? Is the trajectory going the way that you and your colleagues at S&T would like it to in order to find these kinds of technologies and get them in the hands of people in DHS that need them? Oh, absolutely. I think the trajectory is going really well. Um, you know, we started the program seven years ago um, and have just grown it significantly. Um, the innovators, not just in Silicon Valley, but around the globe, we actually fund international and U.S. startups. Um, are There's a lot of, um, it's resonating really well with the innovation community to work on uh, very important challenges that the department faces, um, but also be successful as companies. Um, we've had a number of successes, including one, a couple of that have already um, uh, successfully prototyped their solutions and have um, received acquisition contracts from the components as a result. So um, great, great results. What are those companies doing, that the ones that are successful, doing to be successful? Are there common threads among what they're doing and in, in the way that they're uh, responding to the agencies or the way that they're presenting their technology or something? Are, are there things, lessons to learn for other companies that want to follow in that success path? Yeah, I think that one of the one of the things that they are that the successful companies are doing is actually really listening well to the end users, what the pain points and challenges that they face are, and being open and willing to shape their product to meet the needs of of those operational components. Um, we have found that there, when the companies are um, open to collaborating, and I know it sounds very simple, but there is there is a there's a personality uh, uh, a connection there that if they're really willing to um, work together with our operations, um, they see great results. As far as listening to the end users, how close to the actual end user to the person on the border, you referenced one of the border technologies earlier and so on, are the companies able to get to really be able to listen to the end user and, and how, how, what are you trying to do to maybe break down those barriers to get those people uh, connected face to face. Yeah, I think it's it's critical that they're talking to the actual people who will use the technology. Um, and um, the way we do that is actually work with internal champions within the components. Um, for example, CBP has a great innovation team that has been a great partner. Um, they are um, our champion. They help connect uh, our companies with the actual end users um, an organization within or, you know, a, a, a certain group or a sector that might be more open and willing willing to, to test out the technology um, and touching the end user is critical. And what, what do those 
end users tell the companies maybe that surprises them or surprises you or whatever? Because I, I, I imagine that everybody learns from the person who actually has his or her hands on the problem, wherever it may be. Yeah, a lot of times the companies have a view of how a technology would be used in the field, and they may not understand or realize the extent to which the technology will get um, beaten up. Um, for example, our canine wearable technology, um, we had an early company that said, uh, you know, this this harness is not, you know, this, this collar won't get damaged, uh, you know, and lo and behold, the dog chewed through it. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of things that they don't realize can happen in the field that um, learning that make, uh, opens their eyes, helps them realize how they need to adapt and shape their product and, and harden the solution. What happens next for you? It sounds like the trajectory for the companies and for the components is pretty clear about how they kind of match up uh, and move forward. But what do you do next either to replicate this, scale it, um, move it in a different direction? What does that look like, Melissa? Yeah, no, I, I continue to... Um, work with our operational components to identify different use cases and problems. Uh, in terms of scaling it, um, how we've developed the program is kind of my IP that I open source. I share it with as many agencies as possible, including our international partners. I was actually just in Singapore helping them launch their uh, their comparable program um, in uh, their home, home Ministry of Home Affairs. So um, I, I just really want to see a lot of agencies, a lot of the governments um, that have common missions do what we're doing um, and, and reaching the innovation community. Do you have a way to share what you learn at if, through events like this and through the ongoing interaction with these companies with other agencies in the United States government so that they can uh, take advantage of some of these things that you discover? Yeah, for sure. We actually put um, uh, all of the videos from the demonstrations on our YouTube channel, on the ST YouTube channel, um, as well as the ST SVIP website. So we absolutely want to share uh, the companies we're working with and the great products they're building. Melissa, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the Demo Week and the Silicon Valley Innovation Program at DHS in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. The FedGov Today podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of FedGov Today with Francis Rose. It's coming next Tuesday. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks very much for listening.